Hello, welcome to the ALS Association podcast. I'm Tony Heil, a communication director here with the ALS Association. And today we're starting a multi-part series on ALS research and some of the great work that's being done at the ALS Association nationally, as well as just general questions about what ALS is um, and what how it affects a person, their brain, their family, their body, and just things that are less specific than some of the ALS uh, papers that are out there which go into very great detail that sometimes can be very confusing. Most people that have ALS, it's the first time they've ever heard of it. It's not something that you're reading about and then suddenly you come to us. Uh, unfortunately, 90% of the people or more that are diagnosed with ALS had no prior family history. So this is a new disease to them, to their families, and they want to really get some of the basic information so they can understand what's going on with this disease and so that they can be good um, stewards with their time and energy and money and really be the best advocates they can be for their ALS families. Joining me for this is Dr. Jill Yursak from the ALS Association. She is the Manager of Research Communications, and she's been working on ALS research for many years. She's spoken on ALS podcasts before. She's written about the disease, and she can go into a lot of detail about many different topics about ALS. Uh, so, Jill, thanks for joining the podcast and taking time today. Thank you for having me. So, like I said, this is going to be multi-part. We're going to do a different series from uh, very general what is ALS to maybe what's going on with clinical trials, uh, what's going on with uh, speech with ALS, you know, and we'll be deciding that as we go forward in terms of what people want to hear because people want to hear a lot of different information. Uh, but before we can go into a lot of the detail about the progress in ALS research, the most important thing we need to talk about is what is ALS? Because there's a lot of people when they come here, that's they hear those letters and they don't necessarily know what that means. So Jill, as an expert, which I consider you to be, what, you. how should we just define what ALS is? So ALS stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It is a neurodegenerative disease that is progressive. And it is a muscle-wasting disease, so when you get diagnosed, um, one of the first things that people see are um, you, have, um, you have difficulty holding your pen, or you trip, or you may fall more often. And one of the most important things I want everyone to realize is that no person is the same with, with ALS, and it presents differently in each person. So there's no blueprint. For ALS, which is very frustrating as a researcher and anyone that cares about someone, right? So you're not, you don't know. Um, once you get diagnosed, um, a, a person with ALS doesn't under, doesn't know exactly how their disease is going to pro progress. So um, when you have ALS, sometimes it can present in your limbs, like your hands or your feet, or um, in your arms. Or it could present, which is which is called like a limb onset, or it could be a ball bar onset which means those the bulbar muscles are your muscles in your um, neck and in your um, jaw. So that could so you may have some slurred speech. Um, and then once the disease progresses, you know that muscle your muscles become weakened and you eventually become paralyzed. And the bad the worst part about ALS which I would which causes which is the most common cause of death is it causes um, muscle wasting of your uh, diaphragm so um, people with living with disease um, eventually become um, dependent on ventilators they become unable to breathe because yes. of the muscles yes um, now I'm not an expert in most 
things disease related but uh when it comes to is that a common thing with any other disease being like your body making it unable to breathe or is that something that is just a very serious component to ALS over other things? So um, other diseases, other neurodegenerative diseases do have our our muscle uh, wasting diseases like Kennedy's disease um, and other diseases, but um, not many affect um, your, your breathing muscles. So that's mm-hmm. what's most the most devastating part. So once a person is diagnosed, the average um, time lifespan is like two to five years. Again, it's not um, set in stone. We I know people who've lived much longer. Stephen Hawking, for Stephen example. Stephen Hawking, exactly. Or people who've lived um, much sh- even shorter. So, and we know a lot of the families that touch the ALS Association that have their very short experience with ALS, unfortunately. Right, exactly, unfortunately. So um, now you said limb onset. My, for everyone that's listening, my grandfather had limb onset ALS. And um, I think it started with his feet. Mm-hmm. But for limb onset, it can start with any limb, right? That's part of the frustration, too. Is it's not just like, oh, it starts here and moves up. Right. You know, it could start with your left foot and then go up your leg and to, you know, if it could be like kind of, if you give your body is kind of like a circle. Mm-hmm. You start your left leg and you come up your leg up to your, to your trunk into your left arm and then you over to your right arm and down. That can happen, but it's not, it doesn't mean it's, Anything could really happen. It could be your left foot to your right foot. There's no no pattern. And do we know? So, so if you went to a neurologist and he said my, and they said you have ALS, limb onset ALS, for whatever reason, how they got to that diagnosis, um, they wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you that. Well, what's going to happen in X months is you're not going to be able to use your hands. Right. They can't. They they won't be able to tell you that. No. And that so that's a frustration. Yes. But it's also something. And we're not going to go into detail on this now, but that's one of the things that the ALS Association is working on, on research, to be able to better kind of plot and understand the direction and duration of this disease. Right. So there's a lot of research going on to understand the, the, how the disease progresses and um, also to improve diagnosis. Because right now, um, diagnosis um, takes about a year on average. I've known people who've taken over a year, which is extremely frustrating gone to several doctors, um, not understanding um, what the disease is, never seen it, seen it before. So it takes longer for them to be diagnosed, whereas if you happen to be a neurologist who's seen ALS, you may, your diagnosis may be a, li- a little bit more rapid. Um, and that's one of the things that the ALS Association is working on, is better making it easier to diagnose somebody for various reasons, and, and then they'll be able to get services and help sooner. Right, so that one year average is not good enough. Of course, obviously not good enough. So you know, there's a lot of and there's a lot of research that's going on to help to understand to speed up that diagnosis, and that's a whole other topic. Um, And I think one of those things are called biomarkers. They are really any measurable substance in your body that changes um, over time. So if you think biomarkers, you think tracking, Mm -hmm. and so you can, you know, they're trying to figure out a way to have see some sort of like a change in your blood or change in your spinal uh, cerebral spinal fluid or in your urine that you could track. Mm-hmm. You can see, you know, this, you know, this molecule in your your blood has changed is changing over time, and you're more likely to to have ALS if you have this protein, or if it's, if it's elevated or it's declined depending on what the biomarker is, and then you could see that change over time as your disease progresses. So there's a lot of work being done that's exciting, and I think um, 
in the next um, few years, we should have a better um, way to, to diagnose patients with ALS, which we're looking forward to. That's that's a very good thing, and 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 especially mm-hmm. that the work is progressing so much from the ALS Association. Yeah. Um, it, it might be hard to understand those the molecular level, which again we don't need to go into detail now. But we both have babies, so it's almost like. Mm-hmm. Oh, if your baby's starting to climb up on your couch, there's a good chance they'll be walking in a few months. And so just like this, if your body's doing the X, we're hopeful that research will be able to say that it might do Y later. Right. And, you know, right now with diagnosis, I'm not pretending to be a clinician because I'm not. Um, and, you know, what happens is you, as a patient gets into the doctor with a problem, they go through a battery of tests. And it's really a process of elimination because a lot of different diseases can present as ALS. Um, that are treatable. So they want to make sure that you don't have something that's treatable versus ALS. That's the last resort, and um, which is not great. But that's but, that's the, they do not want to give you that diagnosis. They want to make sure everything else has been eliminated before you, you get that. So that's why it's been taking over, over a year. Right, because you don't want to tell somebody that you have kill your sac disease. Sorry to give you a disease. But, <laughs> right. um, and the best cure for it is pineapple, and then you're spending six months eating pineapple when it does something horrible to you. Right, and we encourage um, people to go get a second, third opinion. They want, and you want, and to make sure that you're comfortable with your doctor, because you want, you, you want to be comfortable with these people, because you want to get the best care, and they want, they want to help you and be comfortable too. So it's a, it's a two-way street. And that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast with the ALS Association is, because we want people to have the most information possible. That, that makes them a better caregiver, a better user of healthcare. Um, so there's different forms of ALS, and it weakens the muscles. Why, why does it weaken muscles? Like, how does that process work? So um, very, on a very basic level, um, the ALS affects your, your motor neurons. Mm-hmm. So, how many do we have? Like a couple of those, a so, lot of them. So you don't have to give the no, exact number. No, I don't number. have. I don't know an exact number. <laughs> it's not but like there's nineteen hundred of them. So, so your motor neurons are your central nervous system. Mm-hmm. They branch off your central nervous system, which and, go all throughout your body. Right, and so right, like in, for example, in your brain, there are about a hundred billion neurons. So that's a lot, right? And they all they connect to each other and they signal to each other to do different things. They all have a, a role, mm-hmm. and. The one type of neuron that's affected in ALS, one of the neurons, is called motor neurons. And their job is to signal your muscles to move. So your motor neurons, there's two types. The one one type is called upper motor neurons, and they connect your brain to your spinal cord. So you can think of like a cord that goes into your brain, that goes down into your spinal cord. Mm-hmm. And then you have motor neurons, I mean lower motor neurons, that connect from your spinal cord to your muscle. Okay? And so as... Um, ALS progresses, the motor neurons die. So if you can, if you think about it, those motor neurons are now no longer to signal to your muscles to move. And if you, if your muscles no longer receive that signal, they weaken and eventually atrophy enough, and then they they become paralyzed. So without that signal, that I would call even call it that nourishment to, to get to signal those those muscles that's what that's how the paralysis happens so it's a, a progressive weakening that ha- that occurs and that's why we see a lot of people who are athletes with ALS um, who like I know people that played basketball that suddenly realize they can't throw as far as they could so they're they're feeling something weird is their first it, is their initial sensation not necessarily pain no it's but not weird not, that why am i feeling this way yeah it's usually not pain i i would i I think it's safe to say it's usually not pain. It's something more odd. They mm-hmm. feel like that something's odd. And, you know, there's not a lot of 
so there's been a lot of studies done about athletes more likely to get ALS. There's not any, you know, there's been some studies about Italian soccer, soccer players, but there's not a lot of great evidence, I think, big enough as an evidence to definitively say that if you're an athlete, you're more likely to get ALS. But we can, we do, I can tell you that the military, if you are part of the military, um, you are two times more likely to get ALS, and they don't know why. You could be any branch of the military. It could be you could serve in any war. You could really, you can be. Um, you serve in in stateside. Stateside. My you, my grandfather was yes. a military veteran in the Navy, and he was the one that had ALS. So, um, thankfully, because of the work of the ALS Association advocacy, yeah, um, veterans get great services because it's a service connected disease. Exactly. And we wouldn't know that without research that had been done to show the links. Right. Exactly. So it kills so ALS kills the motor neurons. Um does it kill it like a light switch? Like one day your motor neuron to your hand works and the next day it doesn't and then it just slowly atrophies or it just slowly dies? No, it's a, it happens over time and so we don't know there's a lot of research to understand like when that happens mm-hmm. and how fast it happens. Um but it is a progressive thing, so it, ha- it does happen over time. So there's something that goes wrong in your motor neurons that there's some toxicity that happens that causes them to die. And there's a whole host of research, which is a whole other podcast, multiple po- podcasts of different disease pathways that could cause that toxicity in your motor neurons that cause them to die. Mm-hmm. So it could be anything for like, you know, the cell has pro- stress systems and the stress systems are not working correctly or they're not throwing out their their toxic byproducts they have each cell has its own like trash system like recycling system your recycling systems don't work you can imagine things get built up and things get clogged up and your, your neurons die so there's totally there's different pathways to that death oh okay because I remember listening to, to uh, chief scientist Lucy Bruin at a presentation she was explaining how um, the garbage in your cells can back up, and that's yes. part of the reason it could die. And it, was, it reminded me of a computer program where if you've left it on too long or something, and it keeps running and running, and suddenly your computer dies. And it could be because there's just too much information, and you should have like closed that loop in your computer, right. and it can create problems. Right, because it could be a signaling problem. There's all kinds of things that could happen, a transport problem in your neurons. There's a lot of things that could go wrong. So that's part of the reason why ALS is such a complicated disease. There's multiple kinds of motor neurons. It can affect different parts of your body at any time. We don't know the direction. It's very heterogeneous, we like to say. Yeah. Oh, oh that's a nice way of putting it. That's our scientific way of saying it. Very heterogeneous. Genius. There's different causes. So, and then, then also can go, go at different speeds um, and different ways it can kill your cells. So it, it makes your work very complicated. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we know that it will... Um, that it kills those motor neurons. What else? So if you have limb onset ALS, does it become ball bar ALS and vice versa? Um, it can, and sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Making it even more confusing. Even more confusing. So what else do, for someone that's going to hear for the first time they have ALS, um, what do they need to know? Is there a genetic component? We discussed that 90% of them aren't genetic, right? Right. So um, 90% of people um, who get ALS, we call it sporadic. And that means that they, we don't, sporadic is a really fun way of saying we don't know mm-hmm. what causes it. Um, and it's not inherited. We don't know, uh, no one in your family has had ALS, so we don't know what causes it. So that's 90% of the people. 10% of people have um, a genetic component in their that, that we can identify um, that it has been inherited from a family member. 
And there's multiple genes for that, right? It's not just right. one thing. Right. So there's multiple genes. I think right now um, over 30 genes have been discovered. Is um, that, that normal causes... for a disease that has a genetic component? Like, um, I know we always talk about breast cancer, and I don't know. I'm not an expert in that, but um, if you have, um, if yeah, you have either. a disease, like, <laughs> but so if you have a breast cancer, for example, there is a genetic component, and I don't know. Like, is it normal for a disease to have like 30 genes that could be contributing to that genetic disposition, or is it usually one? So it depends on the disease. Right. Um, so, for example, in, um, say, like spinal muscular atrophy, which is a genetic disease that affects children, uh-huh. they, it, it affects the SMN protein. There's, mm-hmm. a muta- there's a problem with that protein or uh-huh. that gene. So the, in that disease, there's one, one uh, gene, whereas other diseases, um, like ALS, there's more than one one genetic cause. Right. And, and, and even with spinal muscular atrophy, there may be things that we don't know about, other genetic components that were just unknown. Right. And if you have sporadic ALS, that doesn't modifiers, necessarily mean... Modifiers, I mean, to the genes that are not unknown. Right. So there's still more to learn just because there's a gene. It could, a gene can affect you in multiple ways even. Right. Right. It could be different genetic modifiers, different things could be happening that could affect how you get even SMA. Now, my understanding is that if you have... Um, genetic form of, I mean, a sporadic form of ALS, it could still have a genetic reason for why you're getting it. Right. We just, we just haven't identified that gene yet. So there's a, yeah, so, so it could be a genetic component we don't know about. Right. And it just, it just isn't familial. Right. Uh, so is it, if you, is it one easier to diagnose than the other? If, so, if someone comes in experiencing something? Well, you know, with the genetic component, it's, um, it's more definitive in that, um, we go in and you, to your neurologist, and you can say, you know, I they part of your workup in any doctor is they ask you your family history, right? So mm-hmm. they can say, you know, Tony, do you have ALS in your family? Do you do you know someone with dementia or something? And they'll they'll tell you. Then you can tell them, you know, Doctor So and So, you know, uh, my aunt or my father, someone in your family had ALS, and so that kind of like rings a bell in their head, and that's in the back of their mind now that maybe there is a genetic component, and then they can confirm that, um, maybe they can confirm it if the, the gene that you have in your family is is known, it's been right. discovered, then you can go and you can sequence your genes, your, yep. your genetic code, which is your DNA sequence. Which we couldn't do many years ago. Right. So Not that long ago. Right, and so a long time, a while ago, it was very, very expensive to to, uh, to um, sequence your genes. Now you can sequence your genes um, relatively quickly, and it only costs two thousand dollars, whereas before it was like tens of thousands of dollars. So it's still not cheap, but it's definitely a lot cheaper than it was before. Right, and we're making progress on all that. Yeah. Now you mentioned about um, the di- diagnosis, mm-hmm. and they so having a genetic component means that there's a way to to diagnose it. Um, there's multiple tests that people will do on neurologists? Right. So I'm, again, I'm not a clinician, so I don't want to go into detail, but there's different tests that um, the neurologists will do. And one of the common ones are um, um, EMG, which is a, uh, electromyography or like a nerve conduction velocity, which I'm not going to go into details. I completely honest with you, I don't know. It just sees how, it, it's a, like an x-ray almost, so it sees how your nerves are working. Right. So, um, but there's different, there's a whole host of um, tests that they'll go through. Mm-hmm. to see if you have ALS or not. Right, to so see how that's all going. Yeah. And um, Plus your family history. Plus your family. That's obviously one of the, maybe the biggest component is your family history. Right. So when you're going to a doctor, you know, 
bring up as much as you can. Be as open and honest as you can about Right. The more information, the better. Mm-hmm. And I know that from the clinicians we know, they really want to get into as much detail as you're willing to share because there might be some small thing that is important to diagnosis and treatment. Right. You may not think it's important, but maybe it is. So anything you can um, tell them that may that you think is relevant, even not relevant, mm-hmm. share, share with them. And the worst thing you could say is, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with it. But you want to tell them anyway. And your doctor is going to be very kind and help you through the process. Yes. We, we know some great neurologists I, in this area. Yeah, great Right. That are adding up, and not I mean this area and this whole country Both, that are filled yeah. with the ALS Association, um, and that really are committing their lives to this disease. Uh, so, you we know that with ALS, um, it affects your motor neurons. The, there's a lower and upper, and we there, it's very complicated in how it does it. One thing that's not necessarily complicated is that the ALS Association is there to help. So how can people connect and get some more information about that? So, and what, and what is the ALS Association doing to educate people. Right. So um, the ALS Association is, is extremely committed to people living with ALS. They're, they come first. Right. They always come first. And so we have a whole host of services um, that you you need to know, people living with the disease need to know about and to contact us right away. Because the earlier you start, the more information you get and knowledge is power. Um, and, and a lot of the neurologists and at the ALS Association treatment centers We'll give you a packet of information saying, here, go to the, go to your local chapter, contact them now because now you can start getting connected with a social worker, a nurse, and a whole host of people that can help. A whole host of services, right. And so, you know, we have a great website. Um, It's www.alsa.org backslash community, and that's a great place to start. There you can search for your local office, um, local chapter, and um, clinics in your area, and um, because... We, we can do so much along this journey, and we don't charge for any of our services. That's the best thing about it. Mm-hmm. It's free. And we're right. here to help you. And we have great people who want to help. And, um, and my experience here at the ALS Association is that there there are costs you're going to have to incur as a person with ALS with any disease. So the social workers and nurses will help you navigate the, the healthcare system so that you know, you're you're not spending money you don't need to spend. So you're spending what your money wisely, saving money, not buying an expensive wheelchair when there's one available. Yeah, we have, we have equipment loan programs, and we have all kinds of educational services that we we can give, from just um, written materials to videos to webinars and um, support groups are great sources of information if you feel like you want to take part in a support group. Not everyone does, um, and we have. Currently, we have 50 certified centers of treat, certified treatment centers of excellence and 65 recognized treatment centers um, and clinics across the country. So we are trying. So that's a decent number, um, but we're constant number. Yes, yeah, a tremendous number. But we're continually working to increase those numbers to provide outstanding care all over the United States, not just you know in certain areas. So, for for example, we just started our clinics in uh, West Virginia, which we're really proud of. And there, there's more coming. Yeah, and I know I've started here a little over five years ago, and the amount of clinics that have been formed all over the country has grown right. at a tremendous rate. And it take, it's not easy to just form a clinic. You don't just one day say, let's have an ALS clinic. The ALS Association goes through a long process to make sure you can provide the services that meet the ALS Association. And the ALS Association standards. Exactly. And with the treatments, the centers, uh, certified centers of excellent, excellence, they're more um, the component they are looking for, which is not every clinic does, is some research component. 
getting um, your the people living with the disease involved in um, some sort of clinical trial. Uh, they serve as a clinical trial site. But not everyone can do that, and we understand that, and we, but we support everyone. Right. And um, that reminds me, in terms of supporting everyone, ALS is a disease that affects a wide range of people, right? Right. What, what kinds of people have been affected by ALS? Is it just is it certain demographic, or is it everyone? So, um we know veterans, you mentioned Veterans that. is two times more likely, but it, there's really no socioeconomic um, barrier, really. No racial barrier, no ethnic barrier. Anyone can get ALS. Um, some epidemiologic data shows that the instance of ALS, meaning the number, new, number of new cases per year, may be increased um, in ca- Caucasians versus African or Asian or Hispanic ethnic groups, but... It's not a huge, huge difference, and still there's more work to be done and to understand if there is really a higher incidence in Caucasians. Um, and that might be because of just our outreach. And we, I know that the ALS Association is constantly working to improve to more communities to make sure that everyone's getting the services they need. Exactly. And um, ALS is slightly, very slightly more common in men than women. Right now, um, the ratios are really 1.3 males to 1.5 female ratio. Um, and the ratio becomes more equal with increasing age. So um, it's pretty pretty close. Um, but does, yeah. that, does that make it more frustrating as a researcher um, knowing that there's not one group? So it's not – you said it's a heterogeneous disease. If it was a little bit more homogeneous – It would help, it would help <laughs> with diagnosis, yeah. yeah. Help with diagnosis, help with like getting a population together. Exactly. Um, but on the other hand – because ALS can be so diverse, does it help with getting a population of people for trials and whatnot, knowing that, you know, there's a wide range of people you could reach out to? Right. So, you know, there's a lot of, I'm not going to go into clinical trials today, but, you know, there, there's a movement to, to, to design clinical trials around populations of people based mm-hmm. on their genetic backgrounds. Because now, because genetic sequencing is becoming pre- more prevalent and more, um, less expensive, that, um, if you could group people by, you know, if we have a drug that specifically works in SOD1, we want to test them on people living with SOD1 mutations. And that's a gene that can affect people there. Right. It's the second most common cause of inherited ALS. So that's just an example. So you could, clinical trials could be around groups of people based on genetic genetics. Right. So what we know today from this podcast is that ALS affects, there's limb onset, there's Ball bar ALS and that affects different muscles. That can go through different pathways in terms of how no it affects you. No one's the same, you. yeah. No one's the same. It's hard to diagnose, but we're working on ways to f- fix that. Um, and that means that your treatments may be different um, and improving over time because of the work of researchers. Uh, we know about the wealth of services through ALS Association chapters across the country. Which you have had a lot of great podcasts about already. Right. So you can find other podcasts about those. Um, and we know that... Um, there's a lot of different care services out there and um, that there's a lot more we need to learn about how ALS makes it impossible to breathe and the kind of services you'll need. Um, Before we finish, are there any um, frequently asked questions, things that you hear that come up about ALS that you think, oh, there's some misinformation about out there. People think that ALS does this. Um, I have a friend, Paul, who has ALS and he after the ice bucket challenge that became popular, people didn't realize it was fatal. And we discussed now that people live two to five years with ALS. Um, people just thought that it meant you were in a wheelchair, which obviously means much more than that. Um, but are there any other things out there that you think um, you'd I, like to address? 
No, I think the the thing I keep kept saying and you kept saying, you know, is the biggest thing is that no person is alike. So, you know, no one's going to present the same, and there's no specific pathway of of the disease progression that we know about. So, knowing that is really important. So, it is this heterogeneous disease, and that there may be more than one cause, and that, you know, down the road, it's more likely that. Um, to cure ALS, there's going to be more than one drug. It's not just going to be one magic bullet. So I think that's something that is really important to understand, that there is going to be probably more than one treatment that's going to help help people with living ALS to live, better, live longer and hopefully eventually find a cure. And I think that's a really important piece of information to finish on because it's easy to get really hopeful and excited about the progress of one drug, but we want something that's going to work for as many people as possible. Exactly. And... We need. We have so many reasons to be hopeful because of the work of the ALS Association and the ALS community. Yes. But don't get too excited about one thing if it's only going to affect people that have the SOD1 mutation, for example. Right, and people... That may be helpful, too. But it's, it is, it's still exciting that it could help some, some people, but researchers are working very hard to um, develop treatments that can affect as many people as possible. They want to make the biggest impact, and they are working harder than ever to do that. And every research study, whether successful or not, gives us more information. Exactly. And speaking of more information, you'll be able to find more information at www.alsa.org. And you'll be able to find more information on some very specific ALS research topics and some upcoming podcasts in our series with Dr. Jill Yersek. So thank you, Jill, for talking today about what is ALS. You're welcome. And we'll look forward to sharing some more information on podcasts very soon. Um, Again, go to ALSA.org to find a clinic near you or to learn more about ALS research and how you can get involved. My name is Tony Heil. Thank you for listening.